would it be a correct gauge of your sensibility for me to assume that when you're in Los Angeles, you go to the Museum of Jurassic Technology every day? <laughs> um, I, I have been there probably more than most people I know. But most people I know tend to sort of go there once and then they're sort of, why would you need to go back? Um, yeah, uh, if, if traffic wasn't an issue, I would probably be there um, more. Yeah. From the Los Angeles Review of Books, coming to you, in fact, from LARB HQ here in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. It is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down here with Colin Dickey, who has contributed to the LARB on various subjects, including reburial, failure, alchemy, and his Stephen King reading habits. He's got a couple books out, Cranioclepti and the Afterlives of the Saints. He's currently researching haunted houses. And, you know, I... I mention i mention the museum of jurassic technology because i guess it has the element of being a whole place where fact meets fiction where where fiction meets non-fiction is that where you make your camp in in, in life in in work i'm reading uh john glaser's uh glasser i'm not sure how to pronounce it uh book on athanasius kircher uh right now a, a man of misconceptions and of course as you know he's a big part of the uh, Museum of Jurassic Technology, and and it's not that he, you know, that stuff is is fictional, um, but it's, you, you know, Kircher was kind of much of his science was somewhere between uh, erroneous and ludicrous, and he, you know, particularly after the scientific revolution, he was kind of thrown to the curb, and I, and I think. Uh, rather than that kind of the line between fact and fiction, I think what I'm really interested in are are these ways of thinking, these histories that have been forgotten and sort of kicked aside. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm drawn to those kinds of stories, stories where there's there's something that we've neglected, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not, and sort of trying to unearth those. Hmm. And those ways of thinking, though, they they do they do get pushed into the sort of middle of the Venn diagram, not the line between fact and fiction, not the line between truth and falsity, but the zone where the zone where they both exist in equal measure. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess doesn't Weschler talk and Lawrence Weschler and, and Mr. Wilson's cabinet of curiosities talk about sort of trying to figure out whether or not Kircher is a, a real person or, a, or a fabrication. And I, yeah, I mean, um, Again, I mean, I think that, that, that the things that are that marginalized and, and maligned, and again, with very good reason usually, they do kind of sort of blur into this realm of, of myth and, and legend um, simply just because I think we're just not used to taking those ideas seriously and taking them seriously as nonfiction. Mm. I just mentioned you're doing some research on haunted houses. You have an article recently on the, the haunted hotels of downtown Los Angeles. What what to your mind is hauntedness? You know, I I got into this project uh, because of my interest in the the Sarah Winchester's house in San Jose, California. Um, which I don't know if you know, but uh, yeah, I went there as a kid, and the, when you see it as a kid, that's completely different than seeing it as an adult. Have you had both experiences? Yeah, I grew I grew up there, and so I I, oh. I went there a lot as a kid. Um, and and yeah, you know, for for people who don't know, it's. Uh, Sarah Winchester was the the uh, daughter-in-law of the guy who invented the Winchester rifle, and after her husband and uh, infant daughter died, moved out to California and uh, built an eight or bought an eight-room farmhouse in 1885. And by the time she died in 1922, it was this elaborate 160-room Victorian monstrosity mansion labyrinth that that has no real rhyme or reason and. <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, and people have long sort of maintained that she was, uh, she built this house in this, in this manner to, to ward off ghosts or to, to trick malevolent spirits, people who had been murdered by Winchester rifles that were pursuing her. And what, you know, I, you know, as a kid, I just love the, I love the house. I love being there as an adult, um, you know, going back there now, I think what I became really interested in was, how these um, these various stories that surround this house can be used to tell a certain kind of history about California, mm. about the West, about you know what a woman living alone means, about how we approach death and mortality, how somebody like that can mourn for you know thirty some odd years alone in this empty house, and so uh, 
you know, when I, the, the, uh, my interest in haunting is not necessarily out of a supernatural interest. You know, I'm not particularly, uh, swayed by stories though. Most everybody I know seems to have one. Um, but what I am interested in is what these stories tell us about the past and how we inhabit certain architectural spaces, how we inhabit old hotels in, in Hollywood and allow these stories of, you know, dead starlets, overdosed musicians, whatever, sort of patrolling the walls, how how that starts to sort of infiltrate our modern consciousness. Safe to say you're not interested in ghosts, but in what makes people start talking about ghosts and using ghosts as an explanation for things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the way that oftentimes, you know, at least the working hypothesis is that these these ghost stories take on uh, a real meaning and a real cachet to the extent that they uh, get at some underlying ambivalence or some um, uh, sort of unresolved tension that we may feel that mm. that finds its best expression in uh, in in ghost stories. Mm. What kind of phenomenon is best best explained by ghosts? Not literally best explained by ghosts, and that's the cause of these things. But what phenomenon is is in people's minds? best explained by ghosts. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think one of the standard cliches, um, is this idea that, that often you'll, you'll hear that a, a building or whatever is haunted cause it's, mm-hmm. um, it's built on an Indian burial ground, right? Yeah. You see that in, in the shining, the movie, you don't see it in the novel, but you see it in, in Stephen King's pet cemetery. So mm-hmm. you, you see it in, in, and you, you see it all over the place. You see it in films all the time. And, you know, for me, what I find really fascinating about that story is, is this idea of, uh, our maybe sort of ambivalence that that we think that we you know quote unquote own the land you know I'm sorry we white Americans you know descendants of of Europeans uh, feel you know believe that we quote unquote own the land and and yet are sufficiently unconvinced of that at the core that that this idea that there might be an, an earlier claim to the land that we're unaware of that that predates our getting there which might sort of come back to haunt us. So, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's both a cliche, but a sort of very obvious example of the way in which are, you know, somewhat ambivalence about how, uh, white settlers took dominion over this country has, uh, sort of come back in a, in a kind of horror movie cliche. You mentioned the shining, uh, Stephen King's novel and Kubrick's adaptation of it. And I'm sure you're aware of the documentary out now room 376, 200, 237. I was close. 376, um, 237, about the people who the shining obsessives who theorize about the shining the the one that has the most currency is that kubrick intended this as a one giant allegory for the slaughter of the native americans do you credit any of these interpretations of the movie the shining um i you know i i've i can't wait to see that film and i love the idea of it i love the I guess one of them, which is not very, doesn't have a lot of weight, but which I secretly like, is the idea that the the film is constructed as a palindrome, mm. that the opening shot mirrors the final shot and and the second shot of the second to last, and so on. Um, that being said, I I'm not one of these people who looks at you know auteur directors or even like you know auteur novelists as having these these sort of grand deeply layered visions that 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 are there for us to unpack i you know i'm not a fan of of ulysses by joyce for for similar reasons so i you know i i love sort of entertaining these ideas i think so much of it is probably you know what the costume designer had on hand what the mm. you know some sort of sort of shortcoming in uh, the production design or a quirk of editing that then sort of opens up a conspiracy theory or, you know, not that's too strong a word, but, you know, a, a, a line of thought that, that somebody can sort of obsess over for, mm. for some amount of time. Yet we couldn't put it past a craftsman like Kubrick wholly to have a grand design. I mean, he was known as somewhat obsessive himself, but Stephen King, even though his version of The Shining was not Indian burial ground driven, mm-hmm. Reading a Stephen King book, you would never read an allegory into one of his stories, would you? I mean, you you wrote a piece for the LARP about reading all of Stephen King's books in junior high. I too read his books only in junior high. Not not as many. I didn't get to all of them, but not an allegorical writer necessarily, is he? No, I mean, yeah, that's something that when when I was thinking about that piece and thinking about Stephen King, 
you know, who's a who's on the records being a big fan of Shirley Jackson and the Haunting the Hill House, which influenced um, Salem's Lot and um, you know some of his other works. And and I'm a, also a huge fan of of that novel as well. And the the contrast between the two of them, it occurred to me that. Stephen King, to my knowledge, and I again, I haven't read much in the past 20 years, but based on just synopses and other things that I've looked at, hasn't ever written a horror novel in which it was unclear whether or not the, there was a supernatural malevolence. Mm. He's he's written, I mean, obviously, you know, The Body and, and Shawshank Redemption are, are novels that are not horror novels, you know, and so there's no supernatural quality to them. But the supernatural novels, you know, and I could be wrong, but so far as I know, there is always a supernatural element so that you'll never find him him doing something like Turn of the Screw or The Haunting of Hill House where the, the point in, in some ways is the psychology of the person who, who is sort of undergoing this haunting, you know, like there, there's never a, a doubt you know, there's always a very strong good and evil that he is interested in sort of using over and over again. And, and, and you're right. I mean, there, there's, that's probably a lot of the reasons why I sort of stopped reading him after a while is there's, there's real limited, um, sort of long-term gain to sort of seeing that, that good and evil, you know, evil as a supernatural force sort of fighting back and forth. It kind of, it kind of worn itself out for me, I guess. But why did we like those books so much then in junior high? I mean, what 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 about? I'm not saying Stephen King writes specifically for junior high schoolers, but I knew a lot of friends who were also going through Stephen King's books at that time. What what about what about that writing? What is that? What did that tap into for you in that time of life? Uh, you know, it's weird. You know, I just reread um, it last fall. Uh, I don't know if you, you ever got to that one. That's the it seemed a little long. I don't think I got to it. Yeah, it's basically it's it's, it's... About the clown underground or yeah, something. The... I mean, it's it's almost like I'm. I can't believe I'm saying it's the one about the killer clown underground, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's actually about that, and it's a big book, like a substantial yeah. best-selling book about a killer clown who lives under the street. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, pretty much. That's it. How does he live under pages. the street? Uh, he well, um, he lives under the street because he well, he lives in the sewers, mm-hmm. and there the the town, the tiny town in Maine. There's this kind of old sewer network that the mm-hmm. the children sort of gradually descend into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's basically, it's stand by me with a evil clown. Cause it, you know, like both of those novels are basically about, you know, the importance of friendship when you're, when you're 10, right. you know, and, the, and that sort of that bond through life. Um, and you know, so I, so as I read it again, um, on the one hand, I was amazed at the, the skillfulness of the plotting, um, that, that novel sort of works with, a there's a, the the kids fight the evil clown when they're they're ten or eleven or twelve or whatever, and then they all reunite when they're in their late twenties or early thirties or something, and and must finally you know do battle with it once and for all. And so there's these kind of parallel stories where it jumps back and forth in time, and and it's just a, it's just a master f- master of plotting, uh, you know, and and that's that's pretty easy to see. It's still about five hundred pages too long, but it's you know. Um, but it, you know, so so on the one hand, I, I see the 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 appeal as just like they. I mean, he's a skillful storyteller. I think there's also an appeal of the sense of uh, a a kind of, and I, I don't mean to be too dismissive of this, but a, a simplified moral universe mm-hmm. um, in Stephen King's novels. Your best friend is your best friend, uh, and will be unless he so. gets taken over by a killer car. Right. Unless he's in service of a killer car. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, but in a, yeah, I mean, in a novel like it, you know, these are six kids who they're the losers, they're the nerds, they all bond together, you know, and this bond lasts through, you know, a horrific experience and then rekindles 20 years later. There are always going to be bullies, the older high school kids who are terrible human beings. And, and, you know, even as human villains, there's there's not a lot. I mean, I'm sure there are in some of his novels, but in many of his novels, there's not a lot of moral complexity. If mm-hmm. if a if a guy is a bad guy, he is he's he is a wife beater. <laughs> he tortures like you know animal you know animal like he does terrible sexual things. Like these are just like mm-hmm. these are sort of par for the course. And and you know, King has these kind of stock villains. But I think again, as a as an you know. 
uh, I was a nerdy kid, and I think I really <laughs> resonated with this idea that nerdy kids had a kind of secret access to the to the rest of the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it did. Yeah, I can see the appeal, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it, it's different for different people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mentioned your most recent book is The Afterlives of the Saints, and reading the book, I, I started... I didn't really think much about saints before. And then I came to think of saints reading this text as people who have done very extreme things in the name of certain religious motivations. Can we, can you add to that definition at all? Or is that enough? Um, that's a pretty good, that, that, that's a pretty good working definition. Yeah. I was interested in people who really, um, lived in some sort of kind of extremism, um, you know, which, uh, you know, people who, who had chosen a path that was well beyond the bounds of acceptable, you know, human behavior and had really, really just decided to go there. And then, and then sort of looking at how, um, how we re- react to people like that and how that's changed over the years. I mean, the, the, the book opens with, uh, San Simeon, who um, was a, a fifth century uh, monk who went out into the middle of the desert, Syrian desert, and found a twelve foot tall uh, Roman column that was just sitting there, just climbed on top of it, and and lived there for the next thirty seven years. Except for he moved to a larger column at one point, um, as you would. Uh, let me ask you this right here: when you read that somebody supposedly lived on top of a column for thirty seven years. Do you literally believe it, or are you interested in what would make that story seem believable to certain people over time? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I maybe err slightly on the uh, the credulity sometimes, but I, I, you know, it wasn't just him; it was actually a fat. There were a lot of guys and some women who, you know, at least stories of of people. One guy who lived up there for fifty years, mm-hmm. um, you know, where people were throwing them. They were throwing them bread, and um, you know, there's a great there's a great discussion uh, by Louis Bunuel, who made a film about Saint Simeon called Simon of the Desert. And Bunuel, um, you know, first heard this story from a, a, a the work of a 17th century Jesuit whose mm. name escapes me right now. And and Bunuel talks about how there's this great line in the in the uh, in the original account about how. Um, the, the side of the column had these sort of uh, just the St. Simeon's uh, shit running down the side and these kind of like, you know, like wax, wax rivulets, which is a great detail and sort of lends some amount of, you know, credibility to the thing. But, but Bunuel comes back and says, well, if all he was eating was, was lettuce and bread, then, then his shit would be sort of hard, sort of cold pellets, you know? So that's like, so, so, I guess like Buell, uh, somewhat independent of whether or not I actually, you know, whether or not he actually was up there. I love thinking about the mechanics of him being up there and, you know, what that, you you know, what that was like on a day-to-day life. And, you know, I, I, for, for that chapter, I, I asked a couple of, uh, doctors that I knew, uh, you know, what would that lead to heat exhaustion? You know, what, you know, I sort of was researching the, uh, the ambient temperatures of the Syrian desert in the summer month and how long could you stand out there, you know, before you passed out and dehydrate, you know, so I, you know, I kind of got into what kind of long-term medical effects might result from that. And, and from what I could tell, not a lot. I mean, it wouldn't be good for you and probably accelerate your chances of skin cancer, but, but in and of itself, it was not a, a, an impossible feat. So, um, but yeah, but I mean, that, that's just sort of one more way I think of, of getting into this question of, well, what does that life look like and, and how, how can you live in such a manner without, you know, falling apart one way or another? It's very tempting to draw a line between a saint on a column for 37 years. And in our modern world, this was a little while ago now, but like David Blaine hanging out in a Lucite box over the Thames for however long. But is it valid to draw that line? Yeah, well, um, wait, I have to ask you, do you not think that he was up there? Do you think that's a fabrication? Um, Blaine or the saint? No, the saint. Oh, um, I I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things I would consider to be unknowable. Okay. So I, it's, it's, I, 
I'd almost rather it was falsified so we could treat it as a myth, but it's in the in the more interesting and harder to deal with area we've discussed where it's like we just have to treat this as true or false. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, that's I think what I I like those stories where you're right that there's they're not really falsifiable and so you have to treat it as a story that is both potentially true and potentially false and and sort of run with that. Mm. Um but oh, to answer about David Blaine, I mean I think again that's that's I think what drew me to the saints that I chose, which were not always the the kind of common everyday you know well known saints. I wanted saints that um, did things that, by modern standpoints, would look uh, somewhat ridiculous, absurd, or sort of grandstanding. I mean, you know, Simeon wasn't known for his charitable works. He didn't perform a lot of miracles. He didn't. Um, he didn't contribute uh, important theology. I mean, his his sacred act was something that now gets done as a um, you know a stunt for publicity. Mm-hmm. And and I th- and so I think that 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 question to me, you know, what's happened in eighteen hundred years that we we now treat um, what used to be considered a sacred moment as, as kind of goofball entertainment, like, you know, David Blaine. Right. So the past 1800 years has, has seen a, a drop in professed religious faith. But do you think that the fact that there are fewer saintly acts going on, less willingness to perform saintly acts means that yes, there's been a drop in professed religiosity, professed religious belief, but that actually means there's been a vast drop in functional religious belief we'd have to talk about what we meant by religious belief certainly um there's there's a preponderance of protestant religious belief in this country um far outweighing what you would find in other first world countries um you know and 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 to speak of latin america or africa um you know to say nothing of still much of europe i think there's 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 not been as much of a drop in religious belief. And again, I'm not, I don't have, you know, statistics, but I, I think that that narrative of we're not as religious as we once was, is itself a kind of narrative about how we view religion now. Um, you know, in the same way that, that Michel Foucault talks about the, the sort of sexually repressed Victorians and how it was, it was a truism quote unquote for us to say that the Victorians never talked about sex when in fact they talked about sex all the time, (laughs) you know, and, and Foucault's Foucault's point is basically that's a way, you know, when we say that the Victorians don't talk about sex, we're, we're actually talking about how we ourselves talk about sex. And so anytime we, we talk about, um, you know, the, the, the comparing our current religiosity to past religiosity, we're, we're only talking really about ourselves. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, there there are the Catholic Church continues to beatify and canonize saints left and right. I mean, often they're quite controversial. The the Nazi saint Pius the Twelfth, um, you know, the the fast tracking of John Paul the uh, Second, you know, but but that that's still an ongoing process, and it's still a process that provides meaning for a lot of people. And I wonder about belief in regard to a Stephen King book or a film like The Shining, yeah. when, the, the amount we voluntarily believe in order to get scared. In junior high, uh, where when we both read Stephen King and, and when I watched The Shining many times, we, we read and watched those things in order to be scared. And I'm, I was about to say, it seems like these days there are fewer genuinely scary novels and fewer genuinely scary films. Now they're all about being shocking, like mm-hmm. how much sudden sprays of gore can make you jump you know sort of the the uh i was i don't know if it's I, i'm not blaming eli roth say but there, there's a there's a <laughs> yeah but uh fine <laughs> due to eli roth yeah. we've seen it seems it feels like to me we have we have less genuinely scary uh fiction in any form now than we once did or is that just me saying I am harder to scare now because I'm not 12 and not credulous voluntarily. I don't know. When you were 12, I don't know if you remember. I mean, did you did you read a Stephen King novel and think to yourself, there are actually these terrifying things like there are, you know. He doesn't try to make you believe that, does he? I mean, he's not writing Christine. I don't know why that's the one I'm going back to. Sure. He's not writing Christine saying, trying to, my, my readers are going to believe there are possessed cars, right? Yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, you know, like, I mean, what I remember a lot of his, the ones I remember being scared by, there's a short story in Night Shift called The Boogeyman. Did you ever read that? I did, but I, if, I, I assume the audience is only somewhat familiar yeah, with Stephen yeah. King, so we should introduce everyone. Yeah, so so the the Boogeyman is it's a short story, and his his short stories were all the scariest because there was never right. any resolution. Right. In the novels, the good guys always won. In the in the in the short stories, that you just were introduced to this horrific thing, um, and you know this guy, he's his all of his three children have died of uh, sudden infant death syndrome, or so. Everybody has led him to believe, but he is convinced that he's being possessed by, or he's being followed by this, this boogeyman that's coming out of the closet. And he's telling this story to, um, to this therapist, uh, who's listening very patiently. And, you know, he's, he's doing the whole thing where he's lying on a couch with his back to the therapist. So he, he doesn't quite see that the, the, the therapist has, uh, disappeared into the closet and at the end of the film or end of the story comes out and the, the, the therapist is holding the therapist face mask in his hand and he's, he's become the boogeyman. And, <laughs> and, and that, you know, that terrified me, I think more so than, than most of his stuff in the sense that it, it was about that sort of mm. inability to escape, mm. you know, that like one is sort of, you know, that there's nowhere to run to. And I, and so I, do I, did I believe in, in the 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 boogeyman as a concept, I guess I I I don't know. I didn't, but you know, I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to think out loud. Like, was I actually? Did I actually entertain? You know, yeah. the possibility of sort of supernatural events when I was a child, and did I lose that? Or you know, I mean, even when I was being scared by these things, did I know it wasn't real? I don't know. I, that's why I was asking you if you remembered. Yeah. I mean, did we think? I know there are no killer clowns, yeah. but there's probably murderers, right. which are not that different from killer clowns functionally in that they kill you. Right. And also that, that sewers are a little bit uncanny and unsettling. Right. You know, I mean, I think his... You probably shouldn't go in them, yeah, even though right. there's no clowns there. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, his talent was finding things that we, we again, were sort of ambivalent about, right. you know, like cars. Cars kill people. You right. know, they kill people through drunk driving That's and accidents. Non- but... Non-possessed cars kill people yeah, as right. much as Christine ever did. More. Right. Right, exactly. You know, and 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 that I mean that novels I remember it. I, I don't know, I have good memories, but it you know, he's fetishized this this classic car that he's rebuilt right. and it and and then the car sort of takes over and starts killing people. But right. it's And worse, the car makes the creepier part is that the car makes the kid, the nerdy kid into the image of like the the ideal greaser that should drive oh. the, in like the seventies. Which oh, right, is right. That, that that is the most genius part of Christine to me is the car possesses him also yeah I think it's like yeah. ronald or something is his name right right yeah so i mean so he basically just sort of i mean we talked a little about this with the haunted houses but i think when king works well he takes things that we're we're naturally ambivalent towards mm. you know and um and and turns them on their head i mean same thing with Cujo. i mean mm. you know i i love dogs my dog is the best dog on the planet um you know and growing up we had a dog that i love but also this dog was the one we had growing up was a rescue and every so often would just bite you, right. you know, and was a big, big 80 pound dog with really sharp teeth. And, you know, the thing about Cujo is like this thing that you love sometimes turns on you, you know? And so like, I think that that's what he did. You know, that's what Christine is about too. Mm. The thing that you love turns on you. Mm. So, um, so I don't know that, I don't know that you need to believe or not believe to buy into that mm. to say, you know, there there's something unsettling with our attachment to things that we don't quite understand. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who who went so far as to teach Stephen King in in his classes, wrote that uh, this isn't going to be a perfect quote, but he thought the efficacy of Stephen King's writing came in large part from the fact that these stories of killer cars, killer dogs, killer clowns, supernatural killer stuff. They happened in 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 like a in lower class settings of trailer parks and and Fritos and and chili dogs and and things like in a very in just a you wouldn't say among low lives but Stephen King seems to have mastered the details of just gritty and almost shameful uh, elements of human mundanity. Putting up the supernatural, not just with Stephen King, but the supernatural, putting the supernatural next to those those 
shamefully pedestrian details. Is th- do you see that elsewhere, you know, outside of Stephen King, in other forms of myth, in other stories that you have been at least made to believe for the moment, uh, the, the very the very low put next to the fantastical? I don't know. You know, what you're what t- listening to you talk about Foster Wallace's take made me think of, though, is, I mean, with the, the haunted houses that I've been looking at and the hotels and other sorts of spaces, it, one of the things that it seems to be the case is that it is – you could say that once an architectural style goes out of fashion, um, it it runs a higher risk of being haunted. You know, Victorian mm-hmm. mansions were not haunted until we started building, you know, whatever ranch homes, whatever the next right. you know iteration is, and and suddenly those those Victorians that weren't torn down that sort of stuck around sort of started to seem out of place. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with with uh, you know a hotel like the the Biltmore downtown Los Angeles. I mean, that's that's a hotel from from the teens, and it's surrounded on all sides by, you know, uh, modern structures or completely rebuilt structures, and and it's 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 been renovated over the years, but it, it still has those old bones, and I mm-hmm. feel like that's the kind of presence, you know, the kind of architectural uncanny of of buildings that are have outlived their usefulness, but yet still kind of linger mm-hmm. on. So, so the, with, with the kind of the class differentiation, I mean, um, yeah, I don't know that. I mean, that's a, I'm not doubting Foster Wallace, um, on that, um, because I think there's something there, but I think it's, you know, you can broaden it beyond the class and sort of, sort of talk about, you know, what's, what's really fascinating is that frizzing between, uh, the kind of thing that is is out of sight normally you know which in america is usually the lower class but is also you know the old the neglected the forgotten um and sort of juxtaposing it with with the strange and the and the sort of fantastical Mm. how much of a of a loved lovecraft reader have you been I was not a huge Lovecraft reader. I mean, I read, I, you know, when I was when I was going through my horror phase, you know, after I'd read everything by Stephen King, you know, I read I read all the Poe I could get my hands on. I read a lot of the Lovecraft I could get my hands on, and it I liked it. It never quite, you know, I never became a a, a huge Lovecraftian. Although now more and more, I mean, I'm going back to it and I'm mm-hmm. um, sort of reading this, rereading his stuff more slowly. Um, why Why do you ask? Something seems relevant here about a writer. He's the only writer I know that, in writing something scary, posited and posited and posited again that there are things so horrific you'll go insane by looking at them. And that is, a, I guess, almost his signature in terms of his horror. But also, it seems like that's taking... But uh, the idea of belief a little too far, that you can see something that freaks you out so much and you believe its existence so thoroughly that you go insane just by exposure to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, does anything affect humans that permanently? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. That's, um, you know, like, yeah, again, I mean, there, there's you find that a little bit in, in modern horror writers, but I think that, like, a lot of times we define kind of like what we were just talking about, we define the horror in terms of human nature and human behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think Lovecraft's whole thing, you know, with with these kind of, yeah, the thing that would make you go insane by looking at it, you know, or the thing that just couldn't be described, right. you know, the to quote Metallica, the thing that should not be, is there's this kind of, like what, what he found particularly horror horrific was the idea that there were aspects of the universe that were completely uninterested in the human as a, you know, that, that the kind of in Lovecraft's universe, humans are not the center of the world. They're, they're, they're increasingly irrelevant, tiny Mm -hmm. part of it, which is in some ways much more terrifying than, Mm -hmm. you know, a car that kills people is this idea that, that our whole existence is in fact a kind of afterthought or a side note in the real drama that's happening somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's why you'd rather, face down a murderer than Cujo because an animal doesn't, I mean, an animal is an animal. It's you don't matter to it. Even a human who hates you is still a human. And there's a sense they might spare you. Whereas an animal will not spare you. A a chimpanzee will not spare you, even though they're close on our evolutionary tree. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That there's, there's a kind of, um, there's an existential terror to something like Lovecraft that, that you don't often find just because we are so Mm -hmm. self-obsessed that even when we imagine horrific things, 
we imagine them as horrific to humanity in particular. A little disappointing that when you see artist renditions of a Lovecraft monster, it's always just a squid with wings, right? Yeah. That um, wouldn't make me insane. I mean, it would be weird, but I think I would come out sane from seeing that. Yeah, although uh, somebody did uh, show me a little crocheted uh, kind of uh, two-inch high little bouncy little Cthulhu, which I thought was pretty damn adorable. Um, Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, Once you you render it, once you represent it, and I think that's maybe what I didn't get when I was reading him as a kid, because, you know, Call of Cthulhu, that story in particular, you know, it's just a bunch of diary accounts and letters, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it doesn't... You don't really get to the monster, which, you know, now I sort of, I get the genius of that, that that's right. precisely the point. I wish they wouldn't put it on the cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And this is, you know, I mean, Kafka was adamant about the metamorphosis never being illustrated for a similar point, that, you know, the 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 giant vermin that Gregor Sansa becomes is specifically not a cockroach. It's right, not yeah. anything. Yeah, so you, you sort of get that, that reduction once you introduce mm-hmm. a, an illustrator. And yet that story has resonated with humanity to such a degree that... Even people who haven't read it will know that it's, quote-unquote, about a man who turns into a cockroach. What happened? Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I don't know the, the providence of how that, you know, how that took fire. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I yeah, I, as, as much of a fan of, a, uh, of Kafka, I, am, I mean, you know, and anybody who's read a substantial body of his work knows that that, that story is somewhat of an outlier, mm. um, you know, that it's you know, quote unquote Kafkaesque is less about, you know, turning into something weird and surreal so much as it is, you know, not being able to get to where you're going and not being able to file a form in time or, you know, sort of figure out what's going on. But that's, you know, yeah. So it's, it's not clear to me, I guess, why. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Well, it's hard to say, but because there, there's two issues here. There's the people believing that it's a cockroach, but also the fact that the story itself is resonant enough to become a meme. Kafka was interested in the creature not being described, but humanity believes that story in in such a way that it doesn't matter if he turns into a cockroach or not. I mean, sure, he's a cockroach. Humanity, we care about something other than the fact that he turns into an unspecified creature, right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I was thinking, you know, I mean, when in the in the story, when he's described as having sort of a large cara, carapace or carapace, I never knew how yeah, to pronounce it. His, his shell. Yeah, right. The shell. The shell. Good enough. <laughs> and the legs, you know, and like, and I think, you know, the, the activity of the human mind is to sort of grope and grope to find mm. a a way to, you know, a category or a noun that, that would encapsulate all those things. And, and you know his his genius in some sense is to uh to refuse that but he doesn't quite he doesn't quite refuse it enough like i think the more interesting like creature in kafka's world is the um odredrek in uh, uh cares of a family man where uh which is a, a pretty short story in which um ends up in in the saints book um at some point I, I ended up talking about him because Odredek is a is described in very literal detail as a spool with a little wire coming out and like a kind of a star shaped appendage or something like that that it can sort of stand up. And so it's very it's literally described as a physical object and yet it, what it actually is is completely unclear. You know, it's this creature, it sort of has sentience and it's immortal. You know, the cares of the family man are basically him realizing that you know, he passes by Odredek every single day, and at some point he's going to die and Odredek is going to live on. And that's what causes him so much grief is this idea that this weird creature that he can't define, you know, again, like Lovecraft, you know, is actually, you know, is the thing that's going to outlast him. That the, the, the human is the kind of temporary transient member of this saga. And the thing that we sort of see is, you know, detritus and trash is actually the person in charge. Now we have no records of a human actually going crazy after seeing a giant winged squid, but we do have records of humans having the subjective experience of a vision of God telling them what to do. And then they carried out those instructions sometimes to achieve sainthood. Ultimately, how different a phenomenon would those two be to your mind going insane from viewing a monster or be dedicating your life to say sitting on a pole or anything else saintly because you thought you saw god 
Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I would disagree that we don't know necessarily that nobody, any of the many of us who have gone insane, uh, weren't prompted by the appearance of a winged squid. That's so, true. Um, <laughs> it's hard to interview someone who has gone insane that way. Exactly. It's hard to you know show them pictures of you know squids. And then eagles and then winged squid. Yeah. um, No, but I I see your point. I mean, I think that, uh, again, this is something I I find really fascinating. And I think that, you know, the the Catholic Church, which I focused on, but certainly any church, um, you know, that kind of religious experience um, has a use value to the church Mm. uh, or it doesn't. And if it has a use value, then that person is is sanctified um you know if this is someone who inspires um people to action then then that person can be viewed as a saint and the opposite i'm i'm um reviewing a book for larb right now on exorcism and possession and you know the there are different levels of exorcisms um and the ones the best ones and the most prominent ones that you hear about are ones in which the church, either, either Protestant or Catholic, can use the exorcism as a means of proving to the spectators that, you know, their God is the true God. And, you know, so that in, in Catholic exorcisms, the Eucharist is really important um, because you, you need to be able to prove that the demons that are possessing this person are viscerally repulsed by the presence of the Eucharist, which is uh, sort of anathema to a, a Protestant theology. And, you know, and so... So yeah, so the the so like these these exorcism cases. I mean, I think the the saints, the ones who weren't just crazy but became saints, did so in part because there was a, a usefulness to their action that the church could then uh, capitalize on. Mm. Um, but something that's you know that changes from culture to culture and period to period. Many of us learned what exorcism is by. William Peter Blatty's novel, uh, The Exorcist, or William Friedkin's adaptation on film, more of us, the, the Exorcist from the late 70s. And I wonder how that movie got to be so effective and so scary for American audiences, because it's based on kind of, exorcism is kind of an obscurity, even in Catholicism, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine... Five percent of the people scared by that movie believe have ever believed in exorcism, even if they're Catholics. What's going on there? What what would go on there? Yeah, I took years ago. I took a uh, seminar at CalArts from from a visiting writer, Gordon Grice, on horror. And I, there was one week in which we watched The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby um, simultane or not simultaneously. But, but, <laughs> that would be something, yeah, right? Um, you know, <laughs> back great. to back and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and and w- one of the things he talked about, which I thought was really interesting, is that Rosemary's Baby is all about suggestion. Um, you know, you never see the the demon baby even at the end. You 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 can spend a good portion of that film thinking that Mia Farrow is is going insane. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of conclusive proof of what's happening. Uh, whereas The Exorcist is the the opposite. You know, like right away. Linda Blair's head is spinning around, turning green, and she's you know she's vomiting, and and there's, um, so so the uh, why do, I think they're both really interesting strategies for for horror. I mean, I th- again, I mean, I think what what's horrific about The Exorcist is that it's in the suburban home, mm-hmm. you know, she's a she's a good young girl, and you know, there's sort of like you know, not that everybody's afraid their child is going to be possessed, but everybody's mm-hmm. afraid of something happening to, you know, their, their beloved child. And that, um, you know, so it probably, I mean, I would guess that it works as a pretty, um, base allegory for, you know, illness, you know, childhood disease or something like that, or, you know, something where, you know, a severe injury or something like that, you know, that you sort of, you see your child imperiled and you, you want nothing more than, you know, the, the doctor priest figure to come along and, and, and heal. Mm. Yeah. I remember seeing the exorcist in theaters when it had that brief revival in, in like 2000, 2002 around then. And I couldn't help, but be like the movie isn't scary anymore. Maybe because there's a certain overplaying of the hand with the spinning 
head and, and the vomiting. But has that been your reaction? Do you think the movie has held up in scariness value or is it, has it drained away? Yeah, I mean, to go back to the parallel to Rosemary's Baby, I mean, I think Rosemary's Baby continues to be more unsettling in a way that The Exorcist has become a parody of itself. Right, it's almost yeah. camp now. It, yeah, exactly. It's camp. Yeah, I mean, I was watching it um, last year, I guess, this on... In in April, and um, I was watching it by myself, and I happened to look up the Wikipedia page, and um, and I, I, it happened to be April first, and the Wiki, somebody had changed the Wikipedia page to um, the first line being "The Exorcist is a horror comedy film directed by <laughs> William Friedkin," you know, whatever, and it just yes. thrown that word in, and um, and it was gone by within twelve hours, but right. um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's this real because it's so over the top, um, you know, that, that shock, the shock value of something like that quickly turns to parody. And I, you know, I mean, that'll be true of the, the gore porn of, you know, hostile and saw that, you know, it's only a matter of time. So, right. Now there's a very different kind of movie, uh, a kind of movie that I have recently been able to not, not been able to get enough of, nor has America in some sense, Two examples recently, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi and Bill Cunningham, New York, both documentaries about people very dedicated to their craft to the point of shutting out everything else in life. One, obviously, a sushi chef, the other one, a fashion photographer. And whenever I watch a movie like that, I just want to see more examples of guys, and they're usually guys, so dedicated to what they do that nothing else counts. I just want to see that on screen and know that it happens. How different is that, or similar is that to the impulse to want to to want there to be saints? That's really interesting. I haven't seen either of those films, um, and I, I I'm curious to your thoughts on on the Jiro Dreams of Sushi one because that one I'm I'm kind of I kind of hate on. Um, you haven't seen it? I haven't seen it, no. but I but I. I'm really skeptical. Although, I, so I, I hear what you're saying, and for me, that I'm not that, saying I love the movie, no, but no, it's no. This. But I, but I guess like the the version of that for me is uh, Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. Yeah. Um, and the difference to me between, I mean, in, in some sense, you're right. They're both guys guys who are obsessed with this single thing and sort of devoted their life to this single thing, be it sushi or, or grizzly bears. Um, one of them is um charging what three hundred dollars a meal or something like that for at minimum i would think it's, it looks at least that expensive right one of whom got eaten yes. you know was you know was himself a meal right. right and and why i'm so much more interested in the latter story is that um uh i'm much more interested in that obsessive quest that mm. leads not to success I feel like if it leads to success, then it's it's like a it's like a TED talk, yeah, you know. Like, and again, I'm 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 hating on the Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which I haven't seen, so I'm in no position. But both you know. of these films that I mentioned have tonal problems. I do prefer to watch Herzog. Yeah, but Werner Herzog has made half his career out of this, right? This yeah. there's great ecstasy of Woodcarver Steiner, but the ski jumper, Fitzcarraldo, uh, admittedly. Is that fictional or is it, is it based fictional. on it's yeah. based on yeah, anything? But uh, yeah, he about but it's not it's not fictional in the sense that Herzog was obsessive enough to drag the ship over the hill exactly, himself. Yeah. So it's almost nonfiction. Um, I think of the uh, the one about the guy who flies over Guiana. Um, I'll, I'll think of the name of that later. But Herzog is the go-to for obsessives, right? Yeah, for for kind of obsessives who who have kind of failed in some sense. Not all of his his people have failed, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I really like about his films is this idea of this kind of, uh, drive on the, on the verge of madness mm -hmm. and, and particularly, I mean, the kind of ruin that that leaves behind, you know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I remember reading, uh, the conquest of the useless, which is yes. Herzog's sort of diary of Fitzcarraldo, um, and just feeling like. I mean, yeah, to the extent that Herzog is his own protagonist in that film, you know, like no matter how crazy of a writer I become, you know, how obsessed I get with a book, I'm never going to destroy forests. I'm never going to like kill people. I'm never going to like, like ruin lives, you know, maybe my own, but you know, like, and, and this is perverse, but you know, I'm very jealous of, of Herzog for his ability to, to pursue something to the point that just like, 
just the capital of both human and sort of financial waste of, of Fitzcarraldo, you know, I, and I, I'm just, I think that's great. I, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but you know, like, um, yeah. So, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in, in these, these lives that are, are built around, you know, again, like Sarah Winchester, you know, who, you know, built this, this house sort of endlessly. I mean, you know, she was wealthy enough that, that she, um, you know, she could afford it. It didn't like run her to ruin, but you know, I mean, she didn't, she wasn't building, you know, the world trade center or, uh, the St. Louis arch or, you know, even Watts tower. She wasn't building something that was designed for that. She could, you know, when she was finished, kind of brush her hands off and stand back and, and marvel at it and, and allow, you know, all of these great people to come and visit and tell her what a wonderful thing she mm. built. You know, it was a very isolated, closed off pursuit. Mm. Um, and I think that's really interesting, you know, I mean, to build a spectacle for that's not designed to be seen by people, I think is really fascinating. Now, I think of the, the late career resurgence Herzog has had these past 10 years. Grandly, I, I could say that maybe we felt like we needed a filmmaking saint he was there to to take that role. But I wonder how much of the human desire for saints is absorbed by sports. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll only quote David Foster Wallace once more, but he wrote in his article about um, an obscure tennis player about 20 years ago. He said that these might be the holy men of our time, these sports heroes, like this obscure tennis player he's profiling who knows about literally nothing but tennis, who who is since the age of two known only tennis who who has gotten rid of every other part of life or had it gotten rid of for him do you think sportsmen fulfill the role for us at all yeah no this is really interesting so so because i know the essay that you're talking about and and when he talks about how terribly written it is and um one of the things that that i find really interesting about the the genre of books about saints uh which is the 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 generic term is is hagiography mm. uh the writing of, of a saint as opposed to a biography um particularly throughout the middle ages um those were really formulaic mm. um to the point of 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 many of them involving a lot of plagiarism uh, and sort of replication, you know, like it's sort of, you know, everybody had the same childhood. Everybody had the same growing up. You know, I mean, there uh, we think of a lot of the saints in terms of the specific tortures that they underwent, Catherine on her wheel and mm. like that. But in fact, most of them were actually they actually died in the same manner of, of being beheaded. That was usually mm. the the final thing. So you see this this replication and this kind of deliberate downplaying of the identity, the specific, unique individual identity of the saint. Mm. And so when I was reading Foster Wallace's essay on this really generically written biography of a celebrity, I mean... I, I should step in for a second and yeah. say, say to the listener, we're actually talking about two two essays right now. Oh, um, we, oh we're, we're talking a different we, one? This is, this, we should bring in both, though. Okay. The first one I mentioned was on Michael Joyce, is, is the guy's name, about 20 years ago. It's in his collection a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again he okay. follows him around this even more important is an article called how tracy austin broke my heart that's the one on tracy that. austin's uh you know he talks about the the horrible genre to his mind the disappointing genre yeah. of sports memoir because it's all cliches and he has this meditation on what would it be like to say gotta concentrate now or let's do this and actually believe those words meant something and have them make you win a thing like yeah. the, how could those words motivate saintly actions like these you know what right. i mean that's the true actually I've, I've never read the supposedly fun mm. uh anthology um so i apologize for that. but you're you're right yeah and the one i'm thinking of is from consider the lobster and it, and it, and so yeah so the point i guess i was making was that there there's a real similarity between the hagiography as a genre and the celebrity autobiography um you know in the way that be it lee iacocca or sheryl sandberg or Michael Jordan or Tracy Austin, there's a, it, it doesn't, you're just sort of replicating the same generic details of sort of quote unquote capital C celebrity. And, um, and so, so to that extent, I think there are, there are interesting parallels to be, to be made. Um, beyond that, I mean, I think, I think you're right there, the kind of obsessiveness of a, of a quest sort of, you know, that again, I, I think, capitalism and sort of American culture can really 
use pragmatically in a way that um, the church would want to use, you know, the ex- the excessive lives of the saint. I mean, I think of um, just on the way over here, I was listening to some NPR story about a project to uh, get inner city kids to sort of make art. And, you know, when they talk about their dreams, you know, all of the guys – their number one dream is to be a professional basketball player. Number two, two dream is to be a professional football player. And that's, that's the promise out. And I suppose somewhere in there is maybe these kids are too young, but at some point, you know, being a, being a hip hop impresario will be, you know, up there as well. And like that, the myth of that as the only viable route out of your life, I think probably on some level is quite useful for, um, you know, maintaining a certain sort of status quo of, uh, you know, poverty and, you know, not, um, not encouraging kids say to become dentists or, you know, bankers or nurses or something like that, you know, but to sort of, you know, give them this kind of all or nothing dream that gets fed through the celebrity bio. Uh, Tiger Woods has been getting a lot of attention lately playing in the masters and, he is a sportsman who in the 90s we wanted to think of as as a saint as so singularly driven and focused i think accenture had a campaign that was be a tiger with a picture of it so he became even a capitalist icon we then found out he he was not perfect uh publicly and i wonder i wonder how, how interested you are in whenever we talk about somebody in saintly terms you know there's always there's always sort of cracks in the story. There's always, we can, we can point out where they are imperfect. Whenever we're talking about a real person, we describe this way. Do you think there's a sort of dual narrative we can hold in our heads? We, we can think of Tiger Woods as a sports saint and a personal wreck. We can think of a saint as being, as perfectly sitting on a, on a column for 37 years, but wanting to envision, you know, the crap running down the side of the pole as well. Like, do we, are we holding two conflicting ideas on our head and fine with that when we think about saints? Well, for me, I'm more interested in the fact that when a culture changes, uh, things that, that were you were previously not uh, contradictions become contradictions. So, um, I mean, you know, that, that, that detail about, you know, St. Simeon's uh, number two, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that comes from a Jesuit priest, you know, that, that when he was writing it, I mean, there was no contradiction there. That was just sort of, you know, or, you know, St. Foy, who um, was a 12th century, I mean, she, sorry, she was a virgin martyr from the 6th century, but became mm-hmm. very popular in, in southern France when her... Her relics were stolen and moved to southern France, and um, she regularly murdered people that disagreed with her. She uh, caused dysentery. Um, she she played jokes on people. Um, you know, there was a the, my favorite story is about this knight who had a herniated scrotum and um, prayed to Saint Foy, who finally came to him in a vision and said, "You know, I've never really had a request like this, but here's what I want you to do." You should take your herniated scrotum to the blacksmith and get him to heat up a hammer until it's white hot and put the scrotum on the anvil and then have him pound the crap out of it. And, and he's like, okay. So he went there and, um, you know, and he, 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 he says to the blacksmith, this is what I want you to do. And the blacksmith is like, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that because you are going to die and then I'm going to go to jail. And and he says like, no, no, it's cool. You know, St. Foy told me it's cool. So so the blacksmith's like, all right, you promise not to, you know, uh, as long as I'm not held blameless. And and so, you know, he's at this hammer and the knight, you know, lays his junk out on this anvil. And, uh, you know, I won't sort of give away the punchline. Uh, it's in the book. But, uh, you know, I mean, that... That was was narrated at the time as this is this is what a saint does, and yes. now we look at that and we say that is psychotic. And so again, so I mean, the contradiction to me is not. I mean, there are you're right. There are contemporary contemporary contradictions between Tiger Woods the athlete and Tiger Woods the shitty husband, but there there are more. There are other contradictions that are sort of historically revealed that I find really interesting, like why. Why would 12th century France view this as a miracle and you and I view it as a sick joke? Right. You know, and, and what does that, you know, what does that say about the, the changing nature of human belief? Finally, what is, what, what do you think is next in line to get discredited 
what sort of things might we watch for discreditation, the, the ways we believe? Might we watch for that? I don't know. I, I guess lately I've been a little interested in um, sort of psychiatry and the and the way in which the, the DSM um, has become so fraught and so political. Um, and I'm not I'm not a Scientologist anti psychiatry. I'm not advocating that, but I do think it's it's becoming harder and harder for you know supposed bodies of power uh, like the church or you know the American Psych- Psychiatric Association or whatever the APA stands for mm-hmm. psychiatric or psychology. It's, it's one of those. One I'm, of those two. Wikipedia yeah. listeners, right, check right. it out. I know, I know, uh, but I do know the difference between psychiatry and psychology. Right. That that I will say, I just can't remember. Anyways, you know that it's getting harder for harder for these 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 institutions to come along and say we we have the true objective unchallenged answer uh you know i mean the 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 sex abuse scandal in the church has made that difficult for the catholic church um and you know the the way in which pharmaceutical companies have increasingly run roughshod over you know the apa um and you know you know i think it's just so i think i don't know exactly what's going to be the next thing to be discredited but i do think that we are we are once again living in a time when there's a great tension between um what what these institutions are telling us is is 100% verifiable fact and what is obvious and becoming a more and more obvious manipulation of that in the service of power. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that will continue to accelerate to the point where we we can sort of get some kind of meaningful change, but we'll see. I've been speaking here at Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters with Colin Dickey, contributor to the LARB and many other publications, author of Cranioclepti and the Afterlives of the Saints. And he's doing research right now on haunted houses. You can rest assured, listeners, that whatever comes out of that will be fascinating indeed. Colin, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.